it too loud? I'm getting some. Ooh. Ooh. There's a lot of feedback. Okay, we'll adjust as we go. This was a fun chapter. Okay. Okay, well, we still haven't lost our sense of humor, so that's good. Okay, a couple was arranging for their wedding, and they asked the baker to inscribe the cake with 1 John 4.18, which reads, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The baker lost the paper that had the scripture reference on it. But he did remember the John 4.18 part. And you can only imagine the shock of those who looked up the reference to read, for you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband, said Jesus to the woman of Samaria. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Okay, here we go. Malachi chapter 2. God is faithful to his word. He promised Israel that after 70 years of Babylonian captivity, he would bring his people home. Some 50,000 exiles returned to a decimated Jerusalem, and they began rebuilding the city in their lives. The temple was finally rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Yay for the book of Zechariah. We know what that's about. The sacrificial system was reinstated. But less than 100 years after returning from captivity and rebuilding the temple, they had sunk to a depth of sin unimaginable. The very wickedness that brought about the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations had been repeated, and their evilness had even exceeded what they'd done before. True faith in Jehovah and proper worship of him were evidently a distant memory. Somehow, they thought that God would be satisfied with formal ritual alone, no matter how they lived. And in a penetrating rebuke of both priests and people, Malachi reminds them that the Lord not only wanted outward compliance to the law, but he wanted heartfelt inward acceptance as well. So Malachi opens fire on their corruption, their wickedness, their false security, and he directs his judgments at their hypocrisy, their infidelity, divorce, false worship, and above all, their arrogance. Now, the word covenant appears numerous times in the book of Malachi, and five of them are in chapter 2. And the first three refer to God's covenant with Levi. Uh, the covenant of the fathers is mentioned in verse 10, and then he talks about the marriage covenant in verse 14. And he reminds them from his opening words of their unfaithfulness to the Lord, and he accuses them of not keeping the covenant, but instead of they act treacherously. So verse 1, and now this commandment is for you, O priests. And Malachi first takes aim at the men who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings, and indeed I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. God is not playing games. Malachi communicates some frightening and very serious threats that God makes against these corrupt priests. And the first thing he says he's going to do is curse them. I will send the curse upon you. And the word send means to hurl or let loose. 
And let me tell you, when God sends forth his curses, he's accurate. They hit the intended target. He doesn't miss. Second, he says he's going to curse their blessings. And one interpretation of blessings that you may have seen was that it refers to the material resources that the priests or the, the, the offerings that the people gave to the priests. It was how they were fed and taken care of. Curses are the exact opposite of what Jehovah desires to bestow on his chosen people. Third, God says he's going to rebuke their offspring or seed, and that means that the curse is going to not just affect them, but it's going to extend into lives beyond theirs. There's going to be a ripple effect. Fourth, he says he's going to smear the dung or the refuse of their many sacrifices on their own faces. So the innards, the awful, the awful, awful, from the sacrificial animals was to be removed from the sanctuary and burned. And he viewed these guys, these unfaithful priests, as worthy of the most unthinkable disgrace. So what is going to happen to them is all of this stuff is going to end up smeared on their faces, and they're going to be taken outside and utterly disgraced. Well, what has made God so angry? I mean, when you talk about running, uh, rubbing animal entrails or dung in someone's face, I think you're pretty angry. And I would say there's probably nothing more terrible or horrifying than to be the, the object of God's utter rage. Well, these priests failed in a number of ways. Now, each failure in and of itself was bad enough, but then they just added up, and it was sin added upon sin. And the first thing they did was they failed to listen to God. Verse 2 says, if you will not listen, I will send the curse upon you. Now, it's entirely one thing to not hear God when you're trying really hard to hear him. It's, an, it's something else altogether different to not listen to him at all, and especially when you already know what he has said. The second thing they failed to do, besides not listening, was they didn't have a burden for God's glory. Um, that's in verse 2. Um, you don't take heart to give glory to my name. Well, how, how do we give God glory? We give him glory by acknowledging his greatness. We praise and worship him because he alone deserves to be praised, honored, and worshiped. God's glory is the essence of who he is. And we give him glory by recognizing that, by honoring that. We give him glory when we love him with our whole heart, not just when we go through religio religious motions. Uh, it's, it's the essence of who he is, and it has to come from the core of our being for it to be meaningful. So the, uh, the next thing they did was they turned aside from the ways of God. And they've caused many to stumble by in the instruction. They've corrupted and violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Their lives fell short of the standards of truth that they were supposed to teach and model. So deliberate, willful disobedience to what they already knew to be true was what characterized their lives. The next thing they did was show partiality in teaching. Verse 9 says, you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in your instruction. And this is something that the prophet Micah also encountered, and he put it this way. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. So what is Malachi saying? What is he meaning? It means that these priests played to their audience. Uh, they were partial in interpreting the law to different people differently. If you had money, you might get it interpreted one way. If you didn't, 
they might have different consequences for you so they told the people basically what they wanted to hear in order to bring in the most money and the most offerings for themselves and this is the leads to the final thing they caused many to stumble then this is really the result of everything else that they've done and it's tucked in the middle of verse eight you have caused many to stumble and the hebrew word literally means to make them totter through the weakness of their legs and ankles. It means they were so feeble they couldn't walk. The, f- the priests made them spiritually feeble. So I think the question is, are the sins of the teachers and the leaders and the priests more grievous than the sins of all the other people? And the answer is yes. And it's not because their particular sins were any worse but because their evil was compounded by the weight of public responsibility that should have restrained it. They were the leaders. Everyone was following them. So it is more grievous. It is more horrible for priests to sin because they caused other people to sin as well. There was a horrible domino effect that took place. So then in contrast to the failure of these priests, which has been pretty, pretty bad, Malachi then points us to Levi as an example of a faithful priest in verses 4 through 7. This is what is supposed to happen with these men. And the first is they show reverence to the covenant. You'll know that I've sent this commandment to you, and my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. God's intention in choosing Levi was to give the people a covenant of life and peace. That is, that life and peace is a, an expression that is unique to Malachi. But Deuteronomy reminds us repeatedly that total commitment to God's ways lead to fullness of life. The Psalms and the Proverbs over and over again reiterate that life and peace follow the man of an obedient heart. And these blessings were granted to Levi that he might fear the Lord. God gives us blessings so that we will fear him and honor him and revere him. And when we're aware of his blessings in our lives, and when we see those things, our proper response to him is deep reverence, deep honor, deep worship. And those people who offered defiled sacrifices, but somehow had confidence in their own piety and what they thought was their right standing before God, they weren't demonstrating reverence. They were demonstrating insolence and rudeness to God. So, the, okay, so not only did they revere the covenant, but these good priests also walked with God. True instruction was in his mouth. Uprightness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And again, we have the contrast. And th- this phrase, to walk with God, Describe two men, particularly in the Old Testament. You remember who they are? Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more. And it also described Noah, who walked with God. Those are the two who that particular phrase is used with. And that implies close, intimate fellowship with God. It implies obedience to his commandments and his ways. And walking with God step by step is connected with honoring him. And you just think, if you walk with somebody, you're both going the same direction. You don't have one going this way and one going this way. Uh, the next thing they did was they turned back many from iniquity. And the last, he says that in the last part of verse 6. As opposed to the priests of Malachi's day, who 
practiced and inconceivably promoted sin, the true priests obeyed God's word and they set an example of uprightness. They encouraged repentance, that turning around and going back to God. The next thing they did was to preserve knowledge, and or that means they taught God's word faithfully. Verse 7, for the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And faithful priests were able to turn many from iniquity. Why? Because they knew and they boldly proclaimed the word of truth. We do that to ourselves when, you th when, when we hide God's word in our heart. Why? So that we may not sin against him. That's what they were supposed to do with the people. We actually as believers can help ourselves in that way. So Malachi's painted a scathing indictment against the priests of his day. And the contrast with what God intended the priests to be like and what they actually were not like is pretty striking. And when leadership fails, a moral decline inevitably takes place among the people. In this situation, it manifested itself in their attitude toward pagan marriages and divorce. The spiritual well-being of the land was being undermined by the breakup of the family. And so now Malachi aims his sights on the people, and he excoriates them for breaking covenant with God. And he returns to the use of questions that we saw in chapter 1. Do we not all have one father? And Malachi is reminding them that God is the father of Israel. They are his chosen people. Out of all the people on the earth, he picked them. And he reminds them of their spiritual heritage. Has not one God created us? God's the creator of his people. And he again stresses the exceptional character of their origin as God's covenant people. They have one father, one creator. That means they're all family. They're all related. So he asked the question, why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? So it's, it's inconceivable to Malachi they've broken faith with one another. Now, uh, there's a word, a phrase that's repeated, deal treacherously. You saw that. It's five times it shows up in seven verses. And the word is bagad, B-A-G-A-D. And it comes from an Arabic word that means to deceive. It means to act deceitfully or fraudulently, to cover things over or cloak things over so people can't really see what's going on. It describes somebody who's a traitor, somebody who violates their allegiance, or somebody who betrays someone. So he is saying that every form of sin was an act of treachery against the entire body, not to mention an act of treachery against God himself. Why do we not honor the exceptional spiritual unity which binds us together as members of God's covenant people? That's basically what he's asking. Verse 11 he goes on, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah's hypocritical faith is more precisely defined here as an abomination. And Malachi uses the word tobah, and it's a term reserved for the worst of evils, like immorality, idolatry, and witchcraft. Early in her history, Israel had been clearly warned before entering the promised land about the Canaanites and their detestable practices. In Deuteronomy, he says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable, the Tobah, things of those nations. And then he lists them. 
there shall be not found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, child sacrifice, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls, <coughs> excuse me, calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable, is tobah, same word, to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy 18. So what Malachi is doing is comparing Judah's faithlessness to the abhorrent practices of the Canaanites. And he is saying that they are no different than rank pagans who are enemies of God. He continues, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. So the, this atrocity is being interpreted as a desecration of the Lord's beloved sanctuary. Now, generally, that would refer to the temple, the building itself. But I think in this context, Israel being the chosen and holy nation and the fact that they're holy seed and God's chosen them to be his treasured possession, I think it could actually be pictured the body itself, like the body of Christ itself. Um, and he reminds them <clears throat> that when they, <clears throat> excuse me, ladies, when they violate and desecrate that bond with God, their father, they desecrate themselves as well. So when you sin, you'd only sin against God, but there's consequences. You sin against yourself as well. So he, it just exposes their sin in all its ugliness. And now he turns to the real point of his accusation. They have married the daughter of a foreign God. Marriage into a family of a different religious or cultural background was a practice that undermined spiritual life in Israel for centuries. Now, there was no objection to, on racial grounds to intermarriage, because I want you to think back to Ruth, the Moabitess, who married Boaz. She had forsaken her pagan god to follow Jehovah, the true God of Israel. That was fine. That was God's plan. However, <clears throat> these particular daughters, excuse me, <clears throat> Mm. continued in their pagan beliefs. They didn't convert to Jehovah, these women did. And J Judah had been warned all the way back again in Deuteronomy, you don't make a covenant with these people. You don't show favor to them. You don't intermarry with them. Your daughters don't marry their sons. Your sons don't marry their daughters. Why? Because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. And since apostasy had been responsible for Judah's captivity and exile in Babylon, it's inconceivable that the entire community is going to be put at risk again. It's just we're doing the same thing all over again. Verse 12, as for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Malachi prays that the Lord will cut off the guilty members who have violated the covenant. This could mean that either the man would die or that his line would cease, he'd have no offspring, and that he would have no descendants in Israel. But anyway, that would be the end of that. Who awakes and answers is an idiomatic phrase that means just whoever he may be. So anyone who does this should be severely treated, even if that person makes offerings to the Lord. So how detestable is it to act piously while at the same time desecrating the sanctuary of God? The cancer in the people of the body of God has got to be cut out and entirely removed. 
So mixed marriage is a serious issue. It's defined as a breach of faith to one another. It's a defiling of the covenant. It's described as a detestable thing. Mixed marriages open the way for apostasy and idolatry. And believers are never, never to marry unbelievers. We'll come back to this. Verse 13, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Malachi draws attention to how absolutely ridiculous it is that they have these displays of emotion apparently intended to move God into granting answers to their prayers. And they are slowly coming to the painful realization that their religious fervor and all their religious activities are in vain. God is ignoring them. And they amounted to nothing, all this nonsense they were doing. Communication with the Lord was broken. And that's now why they cover the altar with tears, with weeping and wailing. Now, this is not godly sorrow in any sense. They did not repent. This was a worldly sorrow that was regretting the consequences they now faced. You know, Psalm 51 is the perfect model of what, a, uh, what true repentance looks like, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh, God, you, are not, you will not despise. Uh, okay, so we go on, and yet they still don't even accept it. Verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? Why, God, why? Can you just hear their whiny little voices? They were shocked, even now that God did st- still did not accept their offering. And he had to spell it out again. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God is a witness. And what they consider to be their private business, nobody's business but mine who I marry, it had not escaped the notice of the Lord. He saw it all. Witness also has a legal sense to it. God was also the witness of the marriage covenant they made between the man and the woman, and he was present when the marriage was contracted. His name was proclaimed in the blessing of the family. And eventually God will be another kind of witness when he serves as judge. You have dealt treacherously against the wife of your youth. So Malachi is now telling us that these men were divorcing their now older wives so they could marry younger pagan women. Ladies, trophy wives existed thousands of years ago. There is truly nothing new under the sun. She is your wife by covenant. And this leaves no doubt that God considers the union of a man and a woman to be a covenant. It is permanent. It is for life. It is for the purpose of raising godly children. It is for the purpose of having a stable society. And then we get to verse 15, which is virtually impossible to translate. Uh, The first part of it, we'll go for the first and the last part. Uh, and that is can be translated, did he not make them one? I think Malachi is pointing them back to God's plan for marriage, which is oneness between husband and wife, to become one. Then he warns, let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. This is your legal wife, the one to whom you've promised faithfulness and support. Don't do this. Why shouldn't they do it? I hate divorce says the Lord, the God of Israel. 
And the word divorce literally means to send away or to cast someone out. It's used in Genesis 3.23. The Lord God sent Adam out of the Garden of Eden. He divorced him. He got him. He sent him away. He got him out of there for different reasons. Some of us have experienced divorce personally. All of us have uh, children, friends, family, or neighbors who have suffered through the agony of divorce. It is devastatingly painful to be rejected and abandoned. It's devastating. Well, how did these men justify divorcing their wives? How did they do that? They turned to a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 where Moses gives instruction about divorce and remarriage. And I'm very grateful to Steve for his teaching on this. If you get a chance, go to Lakeside's website and listen to Steve's teaching on Malachi 2. It makes it, it's, it's fabulous. So uh, ch chapter 24 in Deuteronomy, if a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and he sends her out from his house. That's the first phrase, but we're just going to stop with that. The key word that they were using in this uh, passage is the word indecency. And it literally means nakedness or shame. But these men chose to make it believe, they came to believe that it, it, it could mean anything else other than actual adultery. So, okay, we know the penalty for adultery was death by stoning. That was certainly one way to end a marriage. Um, but anything else, or what they called indecency, anything they wanted it to mean, became the grounds for divorce. So, I don't like your cooking. I don't like how you look. You talk too loud. You don't respect my mother enough. It could literally mean anything they wanted it to mean. And that was how they justified divorcing their wives, their wives of the covenant, to marry the daughters of a foreign god. Well, what does God say about all this? He did not mince words. I hate divorce. You could also say, it says, I am the enemy of divorce. Well, why does God hate it? Because it destroys what he loves and created. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. So it teaches us about the Lord. Marriage is beneficial to society because the family provides stability. Marriage is God's vehicle for training children to be godly. Marriage is a tool that God uses to conform us to the image of Jesus. Now, God does allow divorce in particular circumstances, but divorce is never commanded. God's heart is always for repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation in marriage. We have sinned against God far worse than any spouse could ever sin against us, and God does not divorce us. But because we're fallen and we're sinful creatures who suffer from hardness of heart, God gives permission for divorce in two circumstances. Sexual immorality is valid grounds, and so is desertion by an unbelieving spouse. I don't love you anymore doesn't qualify. We're not compatible doesn't qualify. We just grew apart doesn't qualify. Now, where there is physical danger or physical abuse, separation may be in order, but that couple is to still live in complete faithfulness to their marriage vows. And if someone does not have grounds for divorce, God regards that person as still married, and any subsequent marriage is considered adultery. Now, that's pretty black and white, isn't it? And it's hard to hear. 
and it's hard to say, but God has made his views very clear. Some of us may have been divorced before we became Christians and didn't know or understand any of this. God's forgiven you. You can't go back and change the past. You can't divorce the person you're married to now and go back and marry your previous husband. You can confess your sin of divorce like you would any other sin and thank God for his forgiveness. Some of us may have married unbelievers before we became Christians. You can't divorce someone who doesn't believe. God has graced you with faith to believe, and Peter reminds us that saved wives can have a great impact on their unbelieving husbands. Some of us may have been believers and married men we thought were Christians and who were not. Their lack of faith does not give you the right to divorce them. Some of us may have been believers and knowingly and willfully married non-Christians, and this is a hard place to be. But it's not unforgivable. It makes life harder. But God forgives when we have a broken and a contrite heart. Ladies, we are all sinners. We all need forgiveness each and every day continuously. Malachi continues, I hate divorce and him who covers his garment with violence. And part of the marriage ceremony involved the husband covering his wife uh, with a garment as a symbol of protection. You remember how Boaz covered Ruth with his cloak. And now these garments are covered with violence. When a wife is forsaken or mistreated, the man covers his own cloak with violence. He, the husband and wife are one, and he can't mistreat his wife without bringing destruction to himself. And then he concludes, Take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And when our hearts become hard and critical and bitter, it leads to dealing treacherously with those we are supposed to love and cherish. So as, as we think about application, I think there's two points. And the first one is what is repentance? What is true repentance? Repentance is the threshold to the presence of God. It is the opposite of breaking covenant and dealing treacherously. Repentance is a gift from God. Do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Uh, that's Romans 2.4. Biblical repentance is a summons to personal, absolute, and ultimate unconditional surrender to God as sovereign. It includes sorrow and regret, but it is much more than that. It is a call to conversion from self-love, self-trust, self-assertion to obedient trust and commitment to God. It's a change of mind that involves a conscious turning away from wrong actions and attitudes and turning toward a godly lifestyle and biblical commands. It's a conscious thing. You make a 180. Repentance also means we make no provision for the flesh. We are not to provide our sin with what it needs to keep flourishing. We are to cut off the opportunity for sin to occur. And the second thing I think we can look at quickly is we need to take heed to our spirits, especially in regards to marriage. We need to examine our hearts. We need to take every thought captive. And this applies to all of us, uh, even if you are not married, because you may very well end up counseling someone who's going through a difficult time in their marriage. And for those of us who are married, do you need to repent of a critical, disrespectful, and unloving attitude towards your husband? Uh, do romance novels, are they an escape for you? Do they cause you to be discontented because your husband is, isn't romantic and he doesn't measure up? Well, throw them out. 
Uh, do you complain about your shortcomings, your husband's shortcomings to other people? Stop it. Take heed. Take heed. It's a warning. Uh, God has called us to be women of the covenant, women who honor God, who walk in a manner worthy of his calling, and that is what he's commanded us to do. Let's pray. Lord, oh my goodness, there's so much here. We fall short in so many areas, but I thank you for what you teach us about marriage and divorce, and I pray for us that we would be women who take heed to our spirits, that you would, we would repent quickly, of our sin, Lord, and that uh, we would uh, understand what you're saying, Lord, that you'd change us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.